Across Time, the conversation between adults and pubescent kids about sex has been something akin to torture. So you see, menstruation is just the natural, normal process leading up to being a mother. This is a diagram of the uterus or womb, and these are the fallopian tubes leading to it. And of course, the cringeworthy videos that have for years made students squirm in health education class only tell part of the story. Now, when something excites you sexually, this tissue fills up with blood. That's because even in 2023, the topic of sex continues to be taboo across much of America. And while many parents say they want to be the ones teaching their kids about sex, do they? For an honest answer, ask a college student. We never officially sat down and had a sex conversation. My parents were very close, but that's just something we don't talk about. I think they're probably kind of uncomfortable thinking about their kid doing anything like that. So honestly, it was all self-taught. I was learning as I went, you know. I didn't really talk with them about it. And so since the 1920s, health education has stepped in, ostensibly to fill in the knowledge gaps about sex. And until very recently, the vast majority of Americans supported sex education as part of the health education in schools. But for most young Americans today, if they even receive sex education in school, it falls short. In my experience, it was our baseball coach, the male, and he did not want to have that conversation with us and did not create a comfortable environment to ask questions or to be curious. It was kind of like a, let's talk about this in three days and get it over with and just read your textbook. I don't really want to explain it because everybody was just kind of uncomfortable with it. Of course, young people have a lot of questions about sex. So if they're not getting answers from their parents or learning what they need to know in health class, where are they getting their information? You guessed it. The internet. Definitely through the internet. Social media is the place where I learn the most about sex. I don't think it's a good thing, but the internet. Videos, or I guess articles, just people, I don't know, talking about sex, having sex, the whole nine yards. Educators, researchers, and even these college students agree. That is problematic. When you don't talk about birth control and you don't talk about LGBTQ and you don't talk about other things that teenagers are constantly talking about and constantly seeing on TikTok and Snapchat and everywhere they go, then who are you fooling? In this episode of the Ohio State University Inspire podcast, we talk to college students about what they learned in sex ed and what they didn't learn into researchers about the most effective ways to teach youth, including visually impaired students, to protect themselves and honor others. And we talked to one researcher about the critical shortage of qualified health teachers and to whom districts might turn to teach sex education to American youth. I'm Robin Chenoweth. Carol Del Grosso is our audio engineer. Megan Beery is our student intern. Inspire is a production of the College of Education and Human Ecology. What a person learns about sex in health or science class, like most aspects of education, depends entirely on where they live and when they were in school. Consider the state of Ohio. Ohio is the only state that does not have health standards. The only state. Antoinette Miranda is chair of Ohio State's Department of Teaching and Learning in the College of Education and Human Ecology and a member of Ohio's State Board of Education. When you look at social studies and reading or 
English language arts. There are standards which guide you. These academic standards are typically written by the Ohio Department of Education. But in Ohio, the legislature, not the educators, decide what can and can't be taught in health education. About 20 years ago, conservative state lawmakers returned a federal grant to pay for sex education in the K-12 system, and they put in place a legal requirement that any statewide health standards would have to be approved by, by the Ohio legislature. So they've never put any forth. It's very short-sighted. It's really connected to sex education. So every district teaches health education, but it's not based on any standards that are put forth by the state. Which explains why, in Ohio, one district might teach ninth graders about condom use, while the district right next to it might teach abstinence only. And also, why some experts feel that all other health subjects, from nutrition and exercise to mental health awareness, are not being taught as well as they could be in Ohio. More about that later. First, let's hear more about what Ohio State students say they learned in school. The main thing they taught us, at least in Illinois, they really tried to bring home abstinence, 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 which I think is kind of a mediocre educational thing to strive towards. It was very focused on STDs and using condoms to prevent STDs and kind of scaring you into not wanting to get an STD. I'm pretty sure that I signed an abstinence card at some point too. Especially with going to a smaller school that was more in the country, it was just kind of a you don't talk about it, just don't do it. It should have not been like that because people are gonna do it, maybe in high school, maybe in college, but it's gonna happen. I can say maybe we did like a unit on sex, so it wasn't much. I remember abstinence being the cure-all to whatever you could think of in sex education. I know we didn't talk about any LGBTQ plus sex issues. It was all just man and woman. Don't have sex if you don't want baby STDs, etc. It was mainly fear-mongering a lot just because they would talk about the dangers of sex, how you can get STDs. I don't think it was taught as something to be positive. It was kind of just always looked at in a negative way. They teach it to you because you have to know it, but they don't teach it to you fully, if that makes sense. Today, it's funny this is happening because I was about to get a book about sex education from the library. Is this for a class? No, it was just personal interest. I was talking about it with my therapist. I was like, I feel like there's holes in my knowledge there. So I wanted to get a book. Now that they're older, all of these students from Las Vegas, Chicago, suburban Cincinnati, Toledo, and rural Ohio rate the sex education they received on a scale from terrible to barely adequate. Only one, an incoming first year from Southwestern City Schools, said his teacher shut the book and had a quote-unquote real conversation with students. He alone felt he learned most of what he needs to know. Eric Enderman is a professor of educational psychology and quantitative research, evaluation, and measurement, who studies adolescent motivation. He has conducted multiple studies on how to make sex education more effective. It isn't something I had planned to do. It was one of these things that accidentally happens to you with research. 25 years ago, a group of experts researching health education in schools invited him to speak about a new kind of statistical analysis he was doing. It was really HIV primarily and pregnancy prevention back then. And they were doing all these interventions in schools. And they were all from the medical side. And I 
said, gee, have you ever thought about some of these other variables, like how kids are motivated and how the teachers present the information? And slowly over time, they started to drink my Kool-Aid. I'm still working with these same folks now. Anderman just finished a $2.5 million federal research project with Nationwide Children's Hospital to measure the effectiveness of evidence-based sex education to several thousand Ohio 7th and 8th graders. By the time kids get to high school, ninth grade, depending on what statistics you check, about one-third to up to 40% of kids have had sexual intercourse by that time. You heard that right. Up to 40% of kids have had sexual intercourse by the time they were 14 years old. And a lot of people pretend that isn't happening, but it is. So the message is, clearly, this needs to be targeted earlier than ninth grade. I talked to college undergraduates and asked them about the sex education that they got in school. The surprising thing was almost none of them got what is included in your program, like the healthy relationships, conversations, the communications, talking about being an ally, consent making healthy decisions. It was all abstinence talks. But it sounds like this curriculum departs a lot from the previous ways of teaching sex education. There have been curricula like this around for a long time. I mean, we were using a similar type of curriculum 20 years ago. It's a matter of choices that schools make with regard to the curriculum. But what you're saying doesn't surprise me. A lot of sex education is just very factual, and that is completely ineffective. You talk to people and people said they learned about anatomy and things like that. Um, Knowledge doesn't change behavior. So what these curricula do, this one and other similar ones, is it teaches the students how to actually act on the knowledge and how to use the knowledge to be able to make safe decisions. There's role-playing, and that's a big part of it, is teaching kids how to negotiate really difficult situations with a partner who maybe is pressuring you to do something that you're not ready to do and you don't want to do. It's very hard to say no. This kind of curriculum teaches them how to do that and lets them practice it and gives them strategies for being able to say no or being able to say, I want to be safe, and here's what we need to do to be safe. So that's really the big difference. Does that fit in with your expertise and the research that you've done in other areas? One of the things that we've found repeatedly, we've published a number of papers on this, is that the way the health teacher teaches this information makes a huge difference. Here's the nuts and bolts. A lot of teaching involves what experts call extrinsic goal structure. The teacher gives information, the students memorize it. The teacher gives a test, the students get a grade. The other teaching style, which Anderman's study focused on, is called mastery goal structure. Students master the material through activities, role-playing, dialogue, and discussion. If it doesn't stick the first time, they learn it again. When we're training health teachers, It's not just training them how to teach the curriculum and what the content is, but it's also the whole approach you take. What we have found over and over and over again is when the focus is on mastery, you get huge, huge differences. In one of our studies, we followed 
kids for over a year after health class. And we found that the kids who had um, teachers who were focusing on mastery a year later, they still had really, really big benefits. They were still much more likely to be able to negotiate the use of a condom with a partner. They were much more likely to be able to say no to a partner if a partner was, was pressuring them. Their knowledge, they remembered the information better a year later. So that's really from a motivation point of view, what my whole thing with all this research is focusing on how the teacher teaches. I don't recommend testing kids on this information. And evidence we have says that if you test them on it, they're gonna probably forget it. Everybody thinks in school, well, you have to give them a test, but this is information where, no, you have to just tell them, this could save your life. This could save you from making a decision that might forever change your life. This is really important stuff. And that seems to be enough but teachers are not generally trained to do that. Inclusivity was a big part of the curriculum here. Mm-hmm. Why was that important to the study? So that's really important for a number of reasons. You have to acknowledge that there are some groups of adolescents who are simply more at risk for pregnancy for STIs than others, many ethnically diverse students, lower SES students. So you have to take that into consideration when you're designing curricula. And you have to say, we need curricula that's going to be meaningful to all students who have the curriculum. The other thing that is really important in this curriculum is it teaches students, and this is part of inclusivity, is allyship. And it teaches kids how to hopefully stand up for other people. One of the most rewarding things is having kids tell us at the end of this that they learn to stand up for perhaps somebody, a peer of theirs who's who's part of the LGBTQ community who is being bullied and they've learned to be an ally for them. And that's incredibly important because the LGBTQ kids, they need all the support they can get. There are so many kids who are exploring their identity. And there's so many kids in the LGBTQ community who are bullied and are suicidal and suffer from depression and all kinds of things. Again, by not talking about it, we're not helping any of that. Rather than addressing those issues, many are pushing back. More than 540 anti-LGBTQ plus bills have been introduced in state legislatures this year, many affecting kids. 45 have been enacted. Anderman's study reveals that kids long to be informed about these and a variety of issues. The researchers allowed students to pose anonymous questions online, which their teachers answered to the group the next day. And this is the opportunity for the kids to ask questions that you'd be too embarrassed to ask in front of your peers, but you may still not know. We have thousands of anonymous questions that the kids have asked. And that is also the way that we've been able to learn about things that they want to hear more about. Were there more questions on one particular topic? One of the most important topics they wanted to know more about was LGBTQ topics. They asked for more of that. They wanted to hear a little bit you know, more about anatomy. A number of kids mentioned slang terms that like, people use that they didn't know, but they thought they should know, but they were too embarrassed to ask. It's amazing the kinds of questions they asked. And also in the qualitative responses after the curriculum, we asked them what they've learned. 
we had a number of adolescent females who told us, I learned that you actually can get pregnant the first time you do it. Really? It reminds us that these these myths are alive and well. And just being able to debunk that myth for some kids was, I think, tremendous. I also noticed that in the CDC recommendations that involving parents in sex education is a key component to success in this area. Tell me why that's important that we engage parents in these discussions. It's so important because parents need to be able to talk about these things with their kids. When you can talk about this with your kids, it builds a relationship. It builds trust. They're not like, I always have to be out there to trick my parents and fool my parents. It gives the opportunity for a parent who really wants to really engage with their kids to say, as a parent, I don't want you to do risky things. I don't want you to have sex. But if you do, can we talk about what you need to do to protect yourself? I mean, that just is such a valuable thing. There's no evidence that kids are going to go out and have more sex because of that conversation. But what there is some evidence is that the kids will actually, if they are in a dangerous situation, be more likely to do things that are protective rather than that are risky. In fact, the evidence is solid that having meaningful and open dialogue and providing accurate and inclusive sex education in schools leads kids to hold off on having sex. Back to Anderman's emphasis on inclusivity in sex education. One population of students is at considerable risk if they do not receive it. If you think about how you were taught sex when you were in school, when I was in school, I remember we watched a National Geographic video and we looked at pictures and they pointed out the various anatomy. Associate Professor Tiffany Wilde and Clinical Assistant Professor Deneen Fast work in the College of Education and Human Ecology to train teachers of students who have visual impairments. How do you explain what you saw in those videos to someone who can't see those videos? And that's where those misconceptions, I think, come in. You got videos. I didn't get videos. Right? (laughs) (laughs) I got a drawing in a book. I got got a 1970s version of a video from National Geographic. That's what I had. And all of our students, we asked them to... And they're all like, yeah, that old National Geographic with the girls with the blue eyeshadow. And we're like, yes, we know that. The videos they saw and the book I read, none of those are accessible to a student who is blind or visually impaired. We needed to have some sort of sex education health curriculum for our students. We never had it in our field. Our teachers were taking what they did in gen ed and trying to modify it. And you think about how the ways that you're taught about health and sex education, and it's very visual. And so in 2020, Wilde and a group of educators wrote a health education guidebook specifically geared to teaching visually impaired students. It was the first of its kind. Galen Kapperman, a blind special education professor from Northern Illinois University, and Stacy Kelly wrote the sex education chapter of the guidebook. What we had in our field up until this curriculum came out, we had tactile diagrams. So those are pictures that are basically raised up and lines, you can feel them. Well, when you put certain anatomy in front of a child, female anatomy, we would get things like, oh, this looks like a butterfly. Oh, this looks like a moose. Look for yourself. Drawings of fallopian tubes look just like the antlers of a moose, even to the human eye. 
When you feel the pictures and you have no visual reference to what they actually are, that's what you feel. Hard plastic models are problematic too because visually impaired students learn tactily and those models are rigid and the size is inaccurate. So the guidebook instructs health education teachers to make anatomical models using sponges, vinyl tubing, and foam pipe insulation. Unlike hard plastic models, the materials mimic the feel of skin. They are less realistic than they are tactile representations of abstract concepts. The students can actually feel the different parts. And with the tubing, we actually can push bodily fluids, and we give you the recipes for those bodily fluids wow. in the book, and we can push those through the tube so the students understand where things come out, why the mechanics of your body works the way that it works. And so that hands-on nature is very important for them to understand. The need for visually impaired people to be taught accurate sex education cannot be overstated, Wilde said. The research also shows that one in three persons with a visual impairment have been assaulted. This is another reason why this is so vitally important that we teach not only about our body and body awareness, but also about safety concerns, which is also in the guidebook. That statistic is heartbreaking to me to know that that is occurring. So there's a lot of training that goes into how to keep yourself safe, how to be aware of your surroundings. Wild has researched what happens to adults with visual impairments who didn't get health and sex education that met their needs. I asked Deneen Fast how visual impairment impacts the development of kids. Dr. Wilde wrote about the lack of awareness that may lead to a lack of maturity in sexual relationships. Students who are blind and visually impaired don't have that same opportunity to see their parents, to see their peers, locker rooms, gym rooms. Um, even when you're babysitting and changing a baby's diaper, a lot of times those kind of experiences just aren't experiences that our kids have until they're actually taught those experiences. So it really does go back to um, they're taught not to touch or they're taught not to say things or they're taught to be polite. And in those instances, I think as other kids are maturing, sometimes our kids aren't maturing at the same rate mm -hmm. because they're not seeing the changes that are happening in their peers' bodies. Like Tiffany said, all bodies are not the same. All females are not the same. All males are not the same. But I think sometimes that lack of awareness really sometimes affects that, mm -hmm. how they're maturing and how they're able to interact. Tiffany Wild. Dr. Fass and I have gone around the country, done multiple trainings. And what's sad to me is when an adult will come to one of these trainings who is blind and say, oh my gosh, I didn't know that that's what that anatomy really looked like. Or a parent is getting ready to give birth, has no idea about the birthing process. Never taught about that, scared. What do I do? And so those are the stories that drive you. And to know that this work is so important to be done and to give access to everybody, it's, it's vitally important. There is a critical shortage of teachers trained to teach students with visual impairments. Ohio State's dual licensure program is one of five undergraduate programs in the nation. At the same time, there is an extreme lack of trained health education teachers as well. 
I've just finished a national study. It's just been published on every PE and health program in the United States. And uh, the status of health education in almost every state is borderline terrible. Philip Ward is a professor of physical education teacher education at Ohio State's College of Education and Human Ecology. Pre-service teachers simply don't get enough content knowledge, and, and they often don't have anywhere near enough experiences. Ohio does a very good job in the universities that are offering health education in this state, um, but we are actually an exception. By and large, many states just have the, the lowest requirements um, for health education, two or three classes, and that's it. So that means teachers are not really qualified to teach this very sensitive subject. There's the health education piece that is a part of that sex education. Talking about sex education in schools, I think there's a great deal of uh, problems uh, with the way we teach sex education. That The general position at Ohio State is that for all content areas of health, we want students, our pre-service teachers, to have their students consider what they would do in a situation long before they got to the situation. In other words, it's very much scenario-driven. What would you do? How would you find out the information you need to find out long before you get into drug use or sexual conduct or um, driving fast or you know whatever it might be, uh, mental health issues, uh, all of which hit middle school and high school is in your face almost every day. So our position on this has always been that we want students first and foremost to be decision makers, to know that they're empowered because they are able to make um, intentional decisions. And those decisions should be as much as possible pretty much thought out ahead of time. And we do that by helping you know students in schools identify where to go to get information, uh, to have a lot of um, judgment-based conversations where they take a stand on something, which is not to say they couldn't change their mind down the road, but we want them to be in positions where they have a, a good understanding of what their choices might be or consequences of their choices might be if they go one route versus another. So how hard is it for health teachers to even go down that road of having those conversations given the political context right now? It's phenomenally difficult um, for all teachers, um, not just health teachers and health in particular. It's phenomenally difficult. I think when you come to sex, I think you have to work within the rules. Talking about the decisions that students can make is a much better path than showing them pictures of various forms of STDs and telling them all the bad things that can happen and the consequences of having a baby and so on. One of the really big frustrations to me is helping students to be good consumers of information. I don't care where they go to get information, but they need to step back and go, can I believe this? Should I trust this information? With the way social media works now, the quality of the source has really diminished in the last, well, almost every year now. And people are willing to believe a blogger rather than, say, the Centers for Disease Control. Right. And that 
it to me is a much greater challenge for everything we deal with in health education. Where do I go to get information? Before we recorded, Ward shared that Ohio State's physical education teacher education program is shutting down, and along with it, its health education training. Similar programs across the country are closing too. That puts all health education at risk, from nutrition to exercise to mental health education. It is worrisome that you're saying a lot of these health education programs are shutting down. Who's going to be teaching health teachers? Who's going to be teaching our kids about health and about sex education? People who are untrained to do it, people who present facts, that's not a particularly good way to go for health. It's great for geography. It's great for math. But in health, there are many things that you have to make judgments on. And um, uh, a lot of that is influenced by your parents and friends. You need to be able to differentiate. You just completed a study looking at health education in America. How, how many health educators do we have? I don't know the answer to that, but I can tell you we simply don't have enough. We have very few well-trained teachers out there. What's going to happen is legislatures and schools will find other ways to put a warm body in front of children, but the warm body will be not someone trained very well in either pedagogy or the content that they're teaching. My general sense on this is it's going to take more than a decade to rectify itself. But I can absolutely see districts saying we've got no physical educators, we've got no health educators. And some districts will just put anybody in. Some people will do an alternative license. We know what the data on those look like, particularly in the first three years. You don't want those people, by and large, working with your children. You know, just focusing on sex education, how important is it in America now? critically important to our youth and adults and I don't think there's a case you can make that it's not important and but I would argue everything is darn important right now. I would argue we're also down on nutrition education. We're, we're way down on mental health. I mean we have some fairly serious issues that we're all dealing with and young children and youth dealing with and about to deal with but key to it all is helping young people feel empowered that they can make decisions and that they can access knowing how to access the knowledge they need to be able to make to become informed about those decisions thanks to ohio state undergraduate students liliana bryan rachel forsyth aiden stevenson ernest smoot tamia duke and recent graduates anthony landris and colin crumran for sharing their experiences with us to learn more about the anonymous questions that middle schoolers asked about sex, in an article co-authored by Ohio State graduate students Yvonne Alsop, Ariana Blacksee, and Professor Eric Anderman, see the notes in our episode description.